0: Sit back, relax, and enjoy the
1: Beta Sandwich Science Podcast.
0: Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 71 for January 11th, 2015. Second show of the new year. I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the science of brain freeze. Thank you, Carolina. We're going to talk about an update on 23 and Me. They just won't go away, and we're going to talk about the first new major antibiotic discovery in a couple of decades, and this is a huge thing, whether you think so, know so, or don't care. It is still a very big deal, and it could have a very real effect on you. Today is another very special episode of the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, and that is going to be up close and personal with just Carolina and I. Hi, Carolina.
1: Hello, Scott. You sound so far away from being up close and personal.
0: (laughs) She's referring to the fact that I I got a fancy new uh, microphone for Christmas. Um, And and in order to record the show, it involves uh, iPads and microphones and uh, preamp connector boxes and all kinds of fun technical stuff. Most of you don't care about, but uh, I sound... Like a faraway robot to her. (laughs) But hopefully I sound good (laughs) to you guys. Um, Carolina, of course. Carolina Balkenbush is a registered dietitian out of Las Negas de Vat. If I can get it out. Las... I, I keep... Las Vegas? That's what my brain wants to go to this morning. Las Vegas. We do record at seven in the morning, so please be gentle. She is out of Las Vegas, Nevada, and she is the owner of the wonderful cooking blog called Carolina's Kitchen.com, which you should all go to immediately following this recording. Hello, Carolina.
1: Hi. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: I am Scott Barnett. I'm a Ph.D. candidate in cell molecular pharmacology at the University of Nevada uh, School of Medicine up here in Reno. And uh, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. We do not have Christian with us today, unfortunately. He is not feeling terribly well, something about sinuses. So we wish you well, Christian. Go forth and conquer. I also want to... Thank a couple more uh, likes we got and uh, and all that fun stuff. We got a new uh, five-star review on iTunes from an anonymous person. You are a king among men. May great happiness and wealth befall you. And anyone else who wants to go to iTunes and rate us. And we also have a couple new likes on our Facebook page. I definitely want to thank uh, Robin, who is either from or living in the Netherlands, and Joseph over in sunny California. That's like five or six countries we've gotten so far, and these are just people who've actually written in or written on the or liked the Facebook page or sent us emails. So it is the most wonderful thing in the world to have you guys uh, contact us or like our page. Uh, it, it is the fuel in our tank. It is the currency to which we live on. So thank you so much.
1: That's awesome! Just one step closer to world domination.
0: That's it. It will soon be ours. Okay, so something I just wanted to talk about very briefly is the fact that I have started a second new podcast. Yay! It's called The Poison Cast, and we... Go into extreme depth about how certain poisons and toxins kill you. If you think about, like, you know, uh, snake venom, uh, about the box jellyfish, about mercury poisoning, cyanide, all these different poisons and toxins, how do they get in your body? How do they wreak havoc? And how do they ultimately kill you? And that's what the poison cast is going to be about. You can go to thepoisoncast.com or you can go to iTunes and search poison cast or whatever your podcast searcher is, and it should all be there at this point. You're going to find that there are two episodes of the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast out today. One of them is this episode you're listening to, and the other one is a preview of the Poison Cast. It's the only time I'm going to do it, but it'll give you a chance to listen to it. And if you like it, pass it along, tell people about it, please. And uh, and that will be that. So uh, I hope you guys like it. I It's kind of a labor of love, and uh, I'm very, uh, very pleased with the show. Uh, our first one is going to be on the Black Mamba. So if you want to know if a black mama bites you, how it's going to kill you and why, then give it a listen and uh, that will be that. Well, mm-hmm. let's see here. We, have, we had a busy week. We did not. I believe you've been pretty busy. What, what made your week so busy?
1: Oh, just working all week. But um, I had a pretty fun week. Um, I, I took a, a wine and canvas class last week. <laughs> Do um, tell. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm not even quite sure how to interpret that.
1: Basically, it's a it's a class that you go to if you're a woman <laughs> or if you're dating someone. And they give you um, a canvas and they teach you how to paint um, an image of something. Usually it's something like a landscape scene or like flowers, something that looks pretty intricate but that can actually be taught pretty easily. Um, so we painted a lotus and then they feed you wine the entire time. <laughs> so it's Which a lot is of always fun. Good. <laughs> There were about 30 girls in our class and one dude. Um, uh, was he dragged <laughs> along
0: or was he just... That's, that's pretty much the greatest way in the world to meet women, right?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. Seriously, like a stone that has not been uh, overturned just yet.
0: You're essentially at a bar that only has women.
1: Yes, that is exactly what it is. So a bunch of tipsy women just having a great time painting just prime for the picking
0: (laughs) (laughs) so you yeah you did a lotus and um... yes
1: and and i went all georgia o'keefe on it oh wow i didn't want to paint the rainbow colors that they suggested i wanted to make mine entirely pink and purple and um you know so much so that the instructor came around and said it almost makes you wonder what you're looking at
0: (laughs) (laughs) now are you referencing back to what georgia o'keefe is famous for
1: uh, yes. Which, well, so so her flowers look a lot like female genitalia. Um, but supposedly that's just the myth. You know, it's just misinterpreted. She's misunderstood. I don't know. It looks pretty suggestive <laughs> to
0: me. Uh, Dharma and I did one of these once, And if you go to betasandwich.com and you go to the old episodes, maybe 20 or 30 episodes back, you can just scroll through them really quick. We, we did one of the paint your pet things. Now, this was sans wine, but uh, my product did not benefit from my soberness. I... Did one of my cat Obi Obi Wan, and uh, which is ironically named because I don't even watch Star Wars, but my cat Obi, <laughs> uh, and he had his like tongue sticking out in the photo I was using, and he basically looks like like he's a mentally challenged cat, <laughs> um, and kind of like looking off, like and the eyes aren't even quite lined up, so uh, you can see that if you go to the website. Awesome. Maybe we can put up your flower. Would you? Are you? Are you secure about that? Or, or, or do oh, you Oh,
1: absolutely. I'm quite proud of it. I mean, I wouldn't put it up in my office at work,
0: uh-huh.
1: but <laughs> I will certainly post it online. Uh-huh.
0: Um,
1: but yeah, it's been it's been a fun week. I've been feeling kind of creative. My mom came over yesterday, and we recreated our own version of a wine and paint. Day, we just did it at brunch and had some mimosas. Well, that's the beauty. Um, You
0: can, it's something you can do at home. Matter of fact, it's something most artists do. They just, Mm
1: -hmm. and my mom is all about, you know, not following the rules or directions. So that's pretty inspiring. I mean, there are some things, there are some guidelines that you should probably follow in order for things to turn out well. But, you know, I think as long as you stick to certain, you know, the the most important rules and instructions in life, then you can get creative with the rest. Indeed. Um, And so, kind of with that, I, uh, I did order some things from William Sonoma using my Christmas gift card. I got now, a juicer and an ice cream maker.
0: For those who didn't hear last week's show, you uh, were, <laughs> can you explain <laughs> your love of William Sonoma?
1: Oh, so it's it's sort of like a pre-Christmas tradition for me every year to uh, read this article on Deadspin about the ridiculous products that William Sonoma sells to wealthy. Um, white people. Like $80
0: fruitcakes and stuff,
1: right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and $700 chicken coops with a hand-painted chicken on the side. (laughs) (laughs) So, to to my surprise, I actually got a Williams-Sonoma gift card for Christmas. And I was very distraught at first, and and I thought, oh my god, I have to sell this thing. I'm not going to find anything I want to buy at Williams-Sonoma. So I went online, and I I tried to find out what the the exchange rate was. I wanted to buy like an Amazon.com gift card instead. And so for a $200 William Sonoma gift card, I could get about $175 worth that's, on Amazon. That's a good trade. It's a pretty good trade, but I knew I wanted to get a juicer because I wanted to play around with one. And it turned out that on Amazon, the juicer was $175 and on William Sonoma it was 200
0: Oh, so, so was it, little... it was a draw, so you just went <laughs> to the, would the Williams Sonoma. made no difference. Right. And
1: William Sonoma has a somewhat better return policy. It's a little easier to return things in store and they give you a little bit. Um, more leeway and like reasons to return something right so right now i'm using my juicer and my ice cream maker and if it if it becomes more of a burden than it's worth i can just return it after a month
0: well i can't wait to hear more about it uh yeah so oh from a nutritionist standpoint a lot of people give juicers a lot of crap because they they strip all of the the cellulose out right all the 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 insoluble fiber which is important to digestion and slowing the release of sugar into your system and all that fun stuff you you do not have such qualms
1: i am glad you asked i do and um i i have a blender and usually when i make juices I, i just put them in a blender i'll put my fruits and vegetables in there and then i drink my juice chunky But that can be a little unappetizing sometimes. So for my juicer, I try to keep the fruit content pretty low to keep the sugar level down. And then I've been finding ways to use the pulp. So there'll be a lot of recipes coming on my website with um, uses for the pulp. Like yesterday, I made carrot cake pancakes using the carrot and apple pulp from one of my juices. And then I made some really good turkey burgers using this kale, celery, cucumber pulp from another juice. So I'm, you know, I'm still getting the nutrients by incorporating the the fiber into another recipe, and my juice isn't chunky as a result.
0: There you go, win-win, right?
1: Absolutely. Cool. So how was your week?
0: That was pretty low-key. Uh, not not too terribly much to talk about. So in some ways, I am a um, I'm a pretty normal dude, In other ways, I'm like a, one of the top geeks on the planet. Like my biggest geek thing ever that I geek out on is is pinball machines uh it's the one thing from my childhood that stuck with me i could care less about video games uh or board games or anything like that but i love me a good pinball here and my local little pinball spot that i go to about once a week got a lord of the rings pinball in and you can buy my love of lord (laughs) of the rings and actually lord of the rings is is considered one of the best pinballs out there so uh the fact that they got it it made my little nerd heart go beep 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 and uh and uh i couldn't be we're thrilled. That's that's the extent of how exciting my life is. But to your point on William sonoma and their return policy, I'll say one thing and then we'll get on to science because this is all terribly interesting, I'm sure, to listen. The um, So uh, I bought a pair of extremely expensive running shoes almost exactly one year ago. I went to the local Shields and... Um, and I, I, it's embarrassing to say how much I spent for a moment. They were $170. I was training for a, a half marathon. I was getting some knee problems. I went there. They had a very knowledgeable guy. He said, these are the best shoes. Um, I've got a larger frame. And he's like, these are good support and all this sort of stuff. So so I, I got them. And they did work fine. And they were great. Literally, I bought them last year on January 27th. I noticed like two weeks ago that I was they were getting this big rip on the inner side of where my big toe is on my left foot. And normally, a year is fine for a running shoe. It's about what you'd expect. But I just paid so much for these things, I was a little perturbed. And uh, I actually wrote Asics, the company. I said, hey, here's the deal. I paid a lot of money for these. They're getting a rip in them. Is there anything you can do for me? I It's fine if you can't, but I'm just going to ask. And then they wrote back and they said, well, try going to Shields. Some of our companies that we work with have an extended... Uh, defective policy, blah blah blah, and all this sort of stuff. Well, they we can work with you. If not, then you can send them to us, and we might replace them if they're not overly worn. They were pretty worn, by the way. I um, mean, in an all realistic justification, they both could have told me to go pound sand, and, and it would have been fine because they were fairly worn. Again, I paid 170 dollars. So, long story longer. I went to Shields. Said, "Here's the deal. I bought these. They said to come here and ask you guys, um, blah blah blah," and they said. I mean, literally, she looks at him. she goes, yeah, no problem, go grab a new pair, we'll switch them out. And awesome. um, so the it turned into two eighty-five dollars pairs of shoes if you want to do the math <laughs> that way. And they, what they didn't even question it, and that's one of the good things, not only about going local is that you keep the money local and all that sort of stuff, but if you deal with a nice, reputable company that cares about their customers, you get something like that happen, whereas if I bought these from Amazon, I would have zero recourse. There'd be nothing I could do, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. anyways, that's a big shout-out to Shields and um, and that's that. So go, team.
1: Awesome. Uh,
0: go. Yes, and we'll start with science here, but this isn't quite Science Blast. I wanted to give an update to uh, an ongoing story we've been covering um, uh, about 23andMe. Most of you will remember 23andMe. Uh, A few years ago, they started selling these $99 DNA testing kits, and essentially what you would do is you would swab your mouth, you would send the kit into them, and they would tell you stuff about your ancestry. They would say, hey, look, your earlobes are attached, or they're not attached, and all this fun stuff you can garnish from your DNA. But then they would also give you some more medically-based information about probability. Of, of heart disease and Parkinson's and Huntington's and all this sort of stuff. And that's where the uh, FDA came in. FDA said, no, 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 you are giving medical advice by giving this information and therefore you need to be regulated by us. And this whole kerfuffle went back and forth, which ended in the FDA saying, you guys are pretty much done. We we're, we're not letting you sell these tests anymore because for for various reasons. And uh, and I don't know if they're still actually selling the t- kits anymore. I want to say no, but I I should have looked at that before this. But that was a big back and forth for a long time. Well, uh, as we had actually talked about in the past, what they were most likely to do, and they did exactly that, is in this week's episode of Forbes, they said that they did the first of up to 10 deals with biotech companies to sell all of that DNA information. This first deals with Genentech, and they're going to pay up to $60 million for access to all of 23andMe's data to study Parkinson's disease. Uh, so... There's real mixed feelings on this, because on the one hand, you've got like, oh, you know, in order to get to the next phase of science, in order for us to really understand and get to new medicines, we're going to have to start mining millions and millions of people's genomes. This is unavoidable. It's critical. And it's a good thing, ultimately, for us to start developing drugs based on genomes, not just based on the diseases we're trying to treat. The problem is, is that 23andMe, I I guess, to be it, it, in a very best case scenario, they were being, they mildly obfuscated the fact that they were going to be selling your genome. In a worst case scenario, it was very intentional and they were trying to hide that information. I can't say either way. I don't know. But the fact is, is that they, you bought this kit thinking you were just going to get a little information about your body. And now they're selling your genome to other, to other people. And that, that leaves a bad taste in my mouth, you know?
1: Right. Was there any kind of informed consent about that, or is it even required? There
0: was informed consent, and this is where it gets a little mucky, because you actually even had to check a box saying that this data may be, um, you're giving permission for them to use this data. It was very, the wording was very muddy about what they were doing with it, and it was hidden in pages of other legalese. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if you're going to sell someone's, dean, not just use it, but sell it, another company even if it's been randomized and you don't know who it is i feel that should be in all caps and an 18 point font in bold like you you it needs to be very clear that's what they're doing and they kind of just snuck it in and they did get informed consent so legally and you might even argue you know morally they did the right thing here but kind of like a terms of service if you go to itunes or a website and they say click here if you want to see the website you know you just You don't read the forty pages saying that they they own your first child, you know. So, right? It's I don't know. It's you could make an argument either way, but they did exactly what everyone thought they were going to do. Who actually thought about this a little bit in the real? The ninety nine dollars was great. They made a little bit of money, but the real money is in selling your data ultimately, and that's what they did.
1: Very clever.
0: Very clever indeed. So, uh, having said that, perhaps we should move into science blast. Science blast. Beep pew. beep beep
1: pew. beep.
0: That's pew, pew. that's my backup backup bus <laughs> of beeping. <BB. laughs> um, science blast. Well, you
1: go first today.
0: You go first today. I've just no, been. No,
1: I, I always go first today. But, I mean, but every my week. throat,
0: my throat. Please, please go first
1: okay so why are we talking about ice cream in january when it's like seven degrees in the midwest well it's like 70 degrees here in vegas is it really 70 there yeah it's amazing it's (laughs) so gorgeous down here Uh, i was wearing shorts yesterday (laughs) um and also i got my ice cream maker uh, this week. So I, my, my ultimate goal is to learn how to make healthy ice creams. Um, I found a recipe for a Greek yogurt white wine ice cream that I want to make. Ooh. But I want to start with the basics. You know, I want to um, find out what a good base recipe is and then tweak it a little bit. Um, so I've been looking into the science of ice cream a little bit this week and to find out like why certain things are added, why you like can't mess with with it too much, and also I was interested in, in why we get brain freezes.
0: Indeed. So, I'll start can I ask with, a, can uh, I ask a leader question? So, oh, sure. um, so as far as normal ice cream, is it is it just like heavy cream, sugar, and salt? Is that like what the recipe that comes in the box?
1: Um, no, actually, the the most recipes will actually have egg yolks in it too. Oh. Um, And so I was really hoping you don't have to do the whole egg yolk thing because anytime you work with egg yolks in like a a cream and sugar recipe, it requires you to heat it up to pasteurize it and you have to heat it up slowly so that way the protein is denatured but they don't aggregate and then you gotta like temper hot liquid into them. It's just a huge pain but there's there's definitely a good reason for the egg yolks being in there. So that being said, um, Scott, you're right, the the main components of ice cream are basically um, some kind of cream it can be a combination of milk half and half and heavy cream uh usually it's they say that the best the best tasting ice cream ends up having about 19 percent fat
0: um that's a lot of fat (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes. It's very, it's very fatty. Um, any more than that, and it would taste so rich that USDA actually doesn't consider it ice cream anymore. And the reason for that is like ice cream makers really wouldn't sell very much because people would only be able to eat a very small amount of something that rich. But at home, with your own ice cream maker, you can make it as rich as you want. Um, so it's interesting. USDA actually has a specific definition for ice cream. Um, if it doesn't fall within these requirements, it has to be labeled as a frozen uh, dessert. Basically, it can't be called ice cream. Um, And that means it has to have at least 10% milk fat and a minimum of 6% non-fat milk solids. And a gallon of it has to weigh at least four and a half pounds. There's a weight requirement,
0: there's a density requirement, interesting.
1: Yes, and the reason for that is um, in the whole churning process when you're churning your ice cream, the purpose of that is to freeze it, but also to incorporate um, air bubbles into the emulsion. And so the more air bubbles you can incorporate, the fluffier the ice cream bit uh, the ice cream gets, and also the less product you're using to make a certain volume. So it ends up being cheaper for companies. So most commercial ice creams have about um, they, they, they double in size from the ingredient to, after the air is incorporated they call that increase overrun so commercial ice creams oftentimes will have about hundred percent overrun but premium ice creams the really creamy ones with small ice crystals the ones that are like really rich and almost chewy and melt really slowly typically have um, as low as like 20 20 percent overrun mm. so um, in a home mixer uh, a home ice cream maker uh, depending on the brand you have you might be able to achieve a very, very low overrun, a very small amount of air bubbles incorporated in. But you do want some air bubbles because the air bubbles are what makes the ice cream soft and fluffy. If you incorporate no air and you freeze it, then it's kind of like freezing melted ice cream. It'll just turn into a rock.
0: Ah, okay. So
1: there's there's definitely like a sweet spot there. So when you're making ice cream, the first thing you need to do is you need to um, heat up whatever dairy you're using. And the reason for that is to start denaturing the proteins um in the dairy and what that allows is is it basically helps emulsify um the the water in there and it'll help uh the sugar not just grab onto the water particles and then exclude any fat and protein in the mixture It basically helps combine everything really well
0: oh that's interesting so when you denature the proteins in the milk it allows the sugars to kind of be incorporated in that denatured state so it becomes this homogenous mix Mm
1: -hmm, because sugar is very hygroscopic so it would just latch onto the water and exclude everything else it would prefer the water
0: right it's going to go to the thing and there's tons of water Mm -hmm. and it will go to whatever is easiest to bind to so it would just incorporate all the water and leave the proteins alone. And then you have the separate that i never knew that. And it makes perfect sense.
1: It's pretty awesome. So the best way to do it is just to heat your uh, basically your, your milk or cream mixture. And separately you would combine, well you would whisk your egg yolks first. So the reason we use egg yolks in um, in ice cream is for a few reasons. One is that they contain fat and protein and uh, it does contain uh, lecithin, which is an emulsifier. But interestingly, you don't really need that emulsifier in ice cream because the, the proteins, uh, the, the high content of protein in the dairy is enough to create an emulsion. So actually the extra emulsifiers in the egg yolk serve to sort of do the opposite. They cause the fat in the mixture to destabilize and form like little, uh, they call it partial coalescence which is where um, the fat kind of comes out of solution and creates an inner matrix in the ice cream okay. that can trap air bubbles. So it's, it's, it kind of helps with incorporation of air. Um, ice cream, I'm sorry, the, the egg yolks also help with like a smooth texture and a taste of creaminess. So the way you want to handle the egg yolks is whisk them. And after you whisk them pretty hard, then you add the sugar to that. So same reason, egg yolks are an emulsion. So you want to um, whip them up Make sure that all the, the water, fat, and protein in there is well mixed together. And then you want to add the sugar in very gradually as you whisk it hard. And it'll basically create like this, this white, foamy egg yolk sugar mixture. And then when you have your hot dairy that you've been heating over the stove, you want to heat it to about 175 degrees Fahrenheit, which is where it's just barely starting to boil, tiny okay. little bubbles forming. And you add it very slowly into your egg yolk mixture while whisking it. Then you put it back on the stove and you heat it all up again. So same thing. It's 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 very um, it's a very precise temperature you want to get to, because as you heat it up, the proteins start to denature. But if you overheat it, then the proteins start to aggregate, and then you get like chunks of egg, basically like scrambled egg <laughs> yummy. ice cream. Disgusting. Scrambled egg
0: <laughs> ice cream. That sounds like something from like uh, uh, Harry Potter or something.
1: Yep. Uh, it's actually not that bad. Um, I've made two batches so far. My first batch. I, I got it perfect and then my second batch uh, came out a little chunky but after it's frozen you can't really tell I was just kind of frustrated because I wanted to get it right of course um, anyway so so then the next step is the aging process and what aging um, does is is it allows the the fat particles in there to kind of start cooling down becoming solid so it starts working on that matrix so you'll, so you'll see that your, your custard starts to become a little more viscous And after um, the mixture is basically cooled to about four degrees Celsius um, or about the temperature of your refrigerator, um, you put it in your ice cream churner. And so an ice cream maker um, uses basically rock salt and water in this canister um, to create freezing point depression. And it has this, um, this whipping tool inside called a dasher that basically turns the whole thing around and slowly incorporates air. Now, a perfect ice cream maker would probably be one that uses liquid nitrogen because you form teeny tiny little ice crystals that won't make your ice cream super icy or chunky um, if you can cool it down very very rapidly.
0: On uh, on Iron Chef, they like to use that liquid nitrogen to do that. Uh, uh, yeah, that's like their big like fancy trick, they like to do to be like wow the judges. But I have access to liquid nitrogen. I've always I should try something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it'd be, it'd be pretty cool if they had stuff like that available for home use, but I could see it probably being a hazard and people not being careful with using it. Right. But there used to be an ice cream parlor in Vegas that did have a liquid nitrogen ice cream maker, and you could just, it was so awesome, you could actually custom make your ice cream there on the spot. You'd pick all your ingredients and, like, milk-type base huh. and all this, and they would make it for you from scratch. Um, but anyway, so so in the ice cream maker, it probably takes about 20 to 25 minutes for it to um, whip the air in, and you'll see it basically like increase in size by a third or half. Um, and then from there, if you like soft serve ice cream, you can eat it right then. But if you want it to be more scoopable um, and a little bit more like premium ice cream, um, where it's a little bit harder, you want to keep it in the freezer for at least two hours and probably six. The unfortunate thing is that home freezers actually freeze it a little too cold. So if your ice cream comes out really hard the next day, don't be too hard on yourself. There's really not a whole lot you can do about that. So ideally, you'd you'd eat your homemade ice cream within a few
0: hours. So it. to me, as someone, I, I love to cook, and I don't mind things that take a while. But unless you are trying to make yourself a special uh, type of ice cream that you can't buy at the store, or if, unless you're trying to do something ultra healthy that you can't buy in the store, hmm this seems like way too much work when you can go get a, a quarter of Haagen-Dazs for $4.00.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so if you're going to just buy it at the store, maybe look at the ingredients and, and try to pick the one with the most simple ingredients because then you won't get like a weird chemical aftertaste.
0: Breyers um, is I'd... always famous for that. Briars has got like yeah. three ingredients, you know what I mean?
1: But it depends on the flavor because I did buy Briar's cookie dough ice cream last weekend just to kind of get inspired by the flavor. And um, it, it has a very long, complex ingredients list. Yeah. Um, they For their emulsifiers, rather than using egg, they use um, polysorbate 80 and mono and Rides, and then all kinds of artificial flavors for their cookie dough. So right. it's, it's interesting. And, you, and I don't know. Cookie dough is always Part hard when you
0: sell it commercially because you can't use raw egg, which you are supposed to do. So you have to get very creative mm-hmm. with how you make that.
1: Yep. But if I ever do come up with a good natural um, cookie dough ice cream recipe, I'll definitely post it on my blog done and done you guys can check it out Um, so last thing i wanted to talk about is brain freezes why do they happen what are they um and actually now is a great time of year to enjoy ice cream because you're less likely to get a brain freeze when it's cold out um brain freezes are most common when the temperature differential between the ice cream and the environment is is highest um so basically, on hot summer days so what happens in a brain freeze is when you have something cold, like cold water or ice cream or a Slurpee, hit your upper palate in your mouth. And right there, um, you basically have this collection of, of nerves. And when, when that extremely cold uh, substance touches the roof of your mouth, it causes your, um, it's called your uh, cerebral um, artery to constrict very quickly and that can be very painful and basically causes a 30-second-long headache. But you can also uh, counteract your brain freeze by quickly drinking something warm, and that'll cause it to dilate again.
0: The problem is, is that like how often when you like ice cream is normally like its own thing, you know what I mean? And you're not mm-hmm. normally eat drinking it by like a by like a pot of like s- steeped warm water or tea, you know what I mean? You don't. Mm-hmm. You do Your best option normally is to do the tongue on the roof of the mouth thing, which I, I don't even know if actually works, but.
1: Yeah. Well, what's what's really terrible is to study this. Uh, Harvard Medical School actually found some healthy adult volunteers and had them sip ice-cold water through a straw directly onto their upper palate (laughs) and then measured blood flow in the brain using a doppler test transcranial doppler test can you imagine being in that room and like basically inducing brain freeze on yourself
0: i'd be like can i be in the study to test the effects of ritalin and cocaine on study habits like (laughs) (laughs) do i have to be in this one
1: (laughs) (laughs) let me pick another one but um yeah so that's think that's pretty much it for ice cream and brain freezes. Um, You don't need an ice cream maker to make ice cream, though. If you want to try out your own, you can use the double baggy method. So just combine your cream, sugar, vanilla extract, whatever ingredients you're using, and a Ziploc bag. In a second Ziploc bag, put a little bit of ice and rock salt and just shake it up. That'll basically do the same thing. Shake it up.
0: Shake it up. (laughs) Just like everyone else on the planet, I've had that song stuck in my head for the last like three months oh,
1: the
0: best. or it's shake it off tells you how good i listen
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um awesome well thanks carolina no problem Brain tell freezes. us about
1: this uh, new antibiotic
0: yeah so this is uh, this is really big this just came out in nature on Wednesday and uh, so a little background on antibiotics in a way we've actually been using antibiotics for for hundreds of years uh, the Greeks and Indians they used to take molds and, and other plants to treat infections and they found that it would help them heal in Greece and in Serbia they would use moldy bread that was traditionally used to treat these wounds and infections uh, in Russia peasants would actually take warm soil and rub it in their infected wounds and that plays an important part uh, and I'll explain a little bit later, but that was actually generally effective as well. Um, a little bit more, Sumerian doctors gave patients beer soup mixed with turtle shells and snake skins, uh, and, which was, I guess, effective. They have it on the list of being effective, so there it is. And uh, in Sri Lanka, the army used to use these oil cakes they, with sweet meat, which is like the organs, and, and they would rub that, and they'd use it as a desiccant and an antibacterial. So people, have, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, have found a way to treat infections. We knew that they existed, even if we didn't know that. The science behind them now all this changed with Sir Alex Fleming and if anyone who's taken a biology course has probably heard of, of Fleming he was a Scottish biologist and uh, he basically set in motion modern antibiotics here there is some debate about what he actually discovered and how critical it was but at the end of the day he's credited with it so we're just going to go with it here back in 1921 he first identified uh, the enzyme lysozyme have you heard of a lysozyme before I have, yes. Yep, so they're in your tears and your saliva. And part of the reason that uh, your 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 eyes and your mouth are, are very resistant to bacterial infection is because, and if you think about it, if you get a cut in your mouth, it's very unlikely that that cut's going to get infected. And if you think about it, it's this warm, hot, dark environment. It's perfect for, for infections of a, a cut of some, some kind, but they generally don't get infected. It's because of these lysozymes. Uh, they function by attacking the peptoglycans on the cell walls of bacteria. and and they break them down. So this is naturally occurring uh, antibacterial type uh, uh, enzyme created by the body here. But most course what he's most famous for finding is penicillin in 1928 and the discovery of this penicillin was from *Penicillium notatum um bacteria always have fun names and and, and impossibly to say correctly names uh but they uh this was used of course to treat syphilis and gangrene and tuberculosis and it it saved millions and, and millions of lives so um okay so Back to antibiotics in general. Here, in 2002, uh, or to, excuse me, by 2012, all basic antibiotic development it, it remains stagnant for 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 a couple decades. This is a study in 2012. It remained stagnant for decades, and um, the fact is, is that. We had 16 antibiotics approved from 1983 to 1987, and since then, there have been absolutely no new classes of, of, of antibiotics to treat these gram-negative bacteria, um, and uh, is, or for gram-positive, and there's been zero for gram-negative bacteria in 40 years. So, so there's this complete dearth of available antibiotics, and... Antibiotics, as you can expect, have been critical to human survival. Between 1944 and 1972, human life expectancy jumped eight years, and that's largely contributed to to the availability of antibiotics. So it's really important that we get new ones. Now, uh, how do antibiotics work? This is actually pretty cool here. So there's a couple different classes of antibiotics. One are called bactericidal. One is called bacteriostatic. Bactericidal, uh, as in to kill the bacteria, uh, this works by... Interfering with the formation of the bacterial cell wall or its contents, and when they, the antibiotic will go inside the cell, it will bind to certain components that make up the cell wall, and the cell wall can't form, and the bacteria dies there. And it's it's been very effective. Penicillin is certainly one of these types here. The other type is bacteriostatic, and it kind of has the word static built in, meaning not moving. And what this does is it interferes interferes with the DNA of the bacteria, and it can't it can't replicate itself. It can't do Mitosis, and so the bacteria is alive, but it can't replicate. And when it finishes its life cycle, it it dies. There, here. So th- th- those are the two kind of classes of antibiotics. So this article that just came out in Nature, which is titled "The New Antibiotic That Kills Pathogens Without Detectable Resistance," um, is really cool. Most. Antibiotics that that were discovered, in, in the bulk of them were discovered in, between 1940 and 1960. These were done by screening soil microorganisms, and what that means is they they would they would take all the bacteria they found in the soil. And if you remember back, they, when people used to put soil in their wounds, this is why, uh, because these soils would uh, the bacteria in these soils would would. Excrete these antibacterial or these antibacterial reagents uh, in a way they were trying to kill other bacteria in the soil so that they could survive um, in a kind of a, a competing war thing here. And they would take that and then we would synthesize it and we would use it here. Uh, the problem is, is that. Uncultured bacteria make up 99% of all the species in the environment. And that is, is that most bacteria we can't grow in the lab. It's extremely difficult. Uh, despite all of our best efforts, if you take a culture medium uh, with sugar and nutrients, the bacteria just aren't going to thrive. And so we've been locked off from this huge source of potential antibacterials. Um, but this uh, this group in Boston that, uh, that discovered this, what they did is they screen 10,000 organisms from 25 different antibiotic groups they grew, they they grew here and the way they did this is they um they have this box so to speak and, and it mimicked soil and these and it was flanked on either side like a sandwich by the semi-permeable membrane, and they could kind of put nutrients into the soil, this fake soil, and the bacteria thought they were in real soil, and so all of a sudden, they were culturing all these bacteria that we, we could never culture before here, and they would collect through the semi-permeable membrane all of the, the excretions from the bacteria, and then they started doing a, a very classic pharmacological um, a test, which is you take all of these fun excretions, and you start putting them in petri dishes with no uh, bacteria that you were trying to test it on and they found uh, they found a couple that were killing a lot of things that could never be killed before and they named this new antibiotic uh, uh, again I, God, I hate these names TXO <laughs> TXObactin I'm gonna call it and this just like a uh, uh, a lot of bacteria for gram-negative, they inhibit cell wall synthesis by binding to this really highly conserved motif, uh, uh, lipid motif of a pepoglycan and uh, this other lipid called lipid number three um, that go into the cell wall and it kills them. And, and this is a brand new antibiotic here. And so, you're,
1: so you're actually saying that the reason we haven't had... A new, basically a new progress any new, new antibiotic that can deal with gram-negative bacteria because we just couldn't grow the bacteria
0: that's almost exclusively yet yeah, people it', had, that's amazing. it had been stumped. it is pretty interesting because uh, there are some some conspiracy theories that are mildly valid but fall apart pretty quickly when you when you investigate it more deeply their bacteria antibiotics are generally cheap to make um, and um, and there's the conspiracy theory is that big pharma doesn't want to invest in them because it takes a lot of money to develop a brand new antibiotic there's not a lot of money in the distribution and therefore it's not worth looking at and uh and while that is true in a broad sense that why would any company want to invest in something that's not going to bring it a lot of money but costs lots of money to develop uh that's not generally how these things work having a novel a Antibiotic that can treat something like MRSA is a huge thing, and I guarantee you, uh, big pharma would love to jump on something like that. So, that's a uh, that's the other side of the coin where people would say mm-hmm. there's just not a lot of people investigating it either here. So, um, but about gram positive, gram negative here. So um, this uh, TXA bacTin, TX TXO bacTin, um I'll call it T bacTin. Uh, it had excellent activity against r- gram positive pathogens, including drug-resistant strains. And that's the real crux of this story here. Um, it is very effective against tuberculosis, including antibiotic-resistant tuberculosis, as well as uh, colostrum difficile, which leads to colitis, holes in your intestines, a really nasty thing, uh, uh, anthrax. And the big one, which all the news has been focusing on, it's It's very, very, very effective against MRSA, uh, which is the plague and dirge of all hospitals. It is completely resistant to all-known antibiotics. Of course, that is until now. And it will... It will wreak havoc if if you find a patient has MRSA in your hospital it can literally shut down a wing and they cut people come in with the bleach and they do everything you think you have a handle on it and then four months later there's another outbreak from the same strain it's a nasty thing so the fact that this might be in the arsenal to treat MRSA is a is a pretty pretty spectacular thing here um if you've heard of gram negative and great positive gram negative and gram positive Bacteria. That's great. Uh, a lot of people haven't. The reason they, or they're even call that is just based on a staining. Uh, you use something called crystal violet dye, which is something you, if you, if you, if you stain the bacteria, a gram positive bacteria will become this violet color because it can absorb that dye. A gram negative means it doesn't absorb the dye. It's just really based on the identification through whether or not it would absorb a dye or not. And the w- the way they're different is that uh, is the outer shell of the bacteria. Bacteria in the type of uh, uh, layers that make up the, the cell membrane for the bacteria. And we won't go into super detail about all that now. But uh, gram-positive are are much easier to deal with with antibiotics. Gram-negative are much more difficult. And unfortunately, gram-negative are 90 to 95% of all gram-negative bacteria are pathogenic. Stuff like E. coli, Salmonella, most of your nasty bacterial-based STDs are gram-negative. So they're still... This doesn't deal with those, but uh, I think the fact that we got... MRSA and and resistant uh, tuberculosis, which have been real scary, especially for hospitals. That's uh that's certainly a a big uh feather in the cap of uh, uh of research. So
1: mm-hmm. go team here. Hey, real quick, can you just review real quick how bacteria? Um become resistant
0: to antibiotics? Yeah, they, they do it in in the same way, and guess what? They're gonna become resistant to this too. It's just a matter of time. Um, uh, the what, what happens is is that you, it's all through a, a, a natural selection process here. If you, any organism, bacteria, um, when you, give it something to kill it, you're going to kill a vast majority of it. But every once in a while, you will get a a mutation that randomly occurs spontaneously that allows one bacteria to be a little bit more resistant to the antibiotic or whatever it is you're trying to kill it with and this isn't through some sentient understanding and realization from the bacteria these random mutations happen all the time often they will be worse for the bacteria and they will end up killing it it's because it's just a random mutation and once i mean if you think about it these bacteria are dividing you know every 30 or 40 minutes, whatever the case may be. So you have colonies of, of billions, if not trillions of bacteria, so all having their own random mutations independent from the other one. So every once in a blue moon, you're, one's just going to be like, oh... I got lucky this 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 uh, this antibiotic that's killing all my other friends i don't seem to care about so much and then all of a sudden that one starts dividing and that's the that's the impetus for these resistant strains and then they move on to other hosts and now you have a something that's resistant to it and as part of the reason a lot of people say don't be obsessive with cleanliness overly obsessive washing washing your hands is fine but using like the the isopropyl hand you know those things you squeeze in your hand using that 40 times a day you're 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 building in a resistance you're you're helping them become resistant ultimately and uh, and you can, it's absolutely possible to overdo it and that's there's this huge issue with the over prescription of antibiotics and that's what doctors have been talking about for a couple decades here, which is you're giving antibiotics to people whose body could naturally fight off the infection or they don't even have a serious infection, and you're giving them antibiotics anyways. You're just giving – you're rolling the dice, and you're giving that bacteria more and more opportunity to form a resistance, which then can move on to other people who uh, – who and they'll do a lot of damage to those people. And, uh, and we are where we are now, where we have tons of strains that are antibiotic resistant, and it's very difficult to create mm-hmm. new antibiotics. So it's nasty.
1: So, this, so that is interesting because I know all the, all the headlines about this um, new finding are basically saying like this is uh, an amazing um, antibacterial agent that, that, that deals with um, resistant bacteria, but that's only temporary. It's not like they've solved the whole bacteria resistance issue.
0: No, and the real kind of a magic of this may be this this way in which they – they were able to culture this new bacteria mm-hmm. and uh if this if this new um technique is effective for a lot of new strains then uh, uh that can culture a lot of new strains then we might end up having quite a bit more than just this the single one here so let's uh let's hope for that yes indubitably you know what i forgot to do
1: uh tell us about your other thing
0: i did and you know what i'm gonna do too i'm gonna Splice something in right at the very beginning of the show, so okay. so in case people got tired of me droning on, they'll actually hear about it. And if you're listening to this, you'll you'll know that what you heard at the beginning of the show is also fake. And now you're probably wondering what the heck is Scott talking about. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking about uh, I have started a second podcast. It's just me. It's called The Poison Cast. And when I started doing the back of the box on the earlier episodes here, I love talking about how like certain chemicals would get in your body and how they would affect your body and kind of follow that through the chain of your body. And, and then I started thinking, I'm like, well, geez, the poisons are really interesting. Poisons and toxins, anything from snake venom to a box jellyfish to mercury to cyanide to uh, all these different Things that can kill you in very small doses, and I'm like, why don't I talk about those a little bit? So I have started the Poison Cast. You can find it on iTunes by looking at Poison Cast. You can find it. Um, you can find it by uh, by uh, going to thepoisoncast.com. And please subscribe and give it a listen. As a matter of fact, if you're uh, actually, I won't talk about that because I'll put it in at the beginning of the show. But uh, uh, so give it a listen. Uh, if you like it, please subscribe. Tell people about it. There, it there, we're a very small fish in a very large podcast pond, and to to have uh, have you guys spread the word, I would love it. And uh, if you there's anything you want to hear about, let me know. If you have any feedback, let me know. Um, but I'm very excited about this fun little project here. So uh, give it a listen. Our first episode is the Black Mamba. How does that kill you?
1: Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely be listening to that. Sweet.
0: Woo! Well,
1: We did a pretty good job for there being two of us.
0: We did. 45 minutes. Awesome. Boom, boom. Alright
1: guys, have a a great week and give us more positive reviews. Tell us where you're from. Ooh, good. Know where in the world you live. And uh, make some ice cream (laughs) and don't wash your hands too much. There you go.
0: (laughs) And if you got MRSA, there's hope for you now. Yay! Woohoo! (laughs) All right. uh, We will see you guys next
1: week. Bye.
0: And end scene.